everybody. I'm Mike Lane. I'm the president of Liftport Group. By way of introduction, if this is if you're new to our show and our program, we started doing space research a little over 20 years ago as a part of the NASA Institute Advanced for Advanced Concepts Research team for the space elevator. Over the last 20 years, we moved away from Earth's elevator to focus on a lunar elevator because we think that we can build that now with current technology. We made that shift maybe 10, 12 years ago. Throughout that last 20 years, we've worked on space-based solar power systems, a tiny bit on space stations, any of the big idea concepts. Those are the things we tend to kind of sink our teeth into. And then when the pandemic hit, we found ourselves suddenly um, in a, this really strange spot, like many people did. You know, how do we stay in business? And um, very accidentally, but we're grateful, uh, the chief scientist of U.S. Space Force uh, threw us a lifeline where we started hosting online conferences, virtual conferences, because the world still wanted to meet, but they were doing it virtually. So we hosted 27 of those. We have over 500 guests in our in, in our shows, uh, you know, hosted on our shows, hundreds of hours of YouTube time. So we tend to focus our show around kind of four areas. Uh, the, the finance, capitalization, the economics of space. We talk a lot about policy. We talk a lot about infrastructure. So those are the those are the topics. And we've been really fortunate to have some terrific guests, uh, both through the conference series and then now with the Dare Greatly podcast series. So we only just recently started getting our shows up on Spotify. So that's really exciting. Uh, you can find the Dare Greatly Space podcast on Spotify. On other news, I've been kind of teasing this for a little while, but the Space Frontier Foundation just approved, the board of directors approved a project with us. So we're going to do a series of 10 shows specifically focused on the Space Frontier Foundation, about their history. Their history is fascinating. I believe, and the president of the board, Sean Mahoney, believe that where we are today would not have existed was were it not for the tireless effort of the Space Frontier Foundation. This is this year, 2023, is their 35th anniversary. It's really hard to imagine, but 35 years ago, a bunch of crazy space cowboys got together and said, hey, it would be great if space were commercial. And through a lot of arguments, a lot of lobbying, a lot of public opinion campaigns, where we are today is a direct result of the work that they did uh, 25, 30, 35 years ago. So we're going to host a program that's really talking about the pioneers of the Space Frontier Foundation uh, and how they got started and what they're doing. And I think there's other stuff more to come on that. Yeah, that just got approved a couple of days ago, so we're pretty happy about that. We'll probably start doing those shows uh, late 
late April. So watch for them, uh, listen for them late April, early May. This should be a good time. We're really looking forward to it. So, okay. And with that, that's all the news I want to get into. I want to make sure we have time for our guest. Dr. Namradika Swami has been a friend of the show, a guest of this show for gosh, three years now, I think, since you know, our first show for the Foundation for the Future, I think was December, December 2020. And I think you were either on the first, first conference or the second one. And I know that Peter was a part of our very first conference for the Chief Scientist of Space Force, uh, Peter Gerritsen. Uh, yeah, no, in fact, in fact, you were involved with that too. You were involved with that very first one as well. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. August, I think that would have been August 2020. So three years now. Um, thanks. Thanks for all of your support. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. We'd like you to spend, you know, how this show is going to work is, is I want you to spend maybe 10 minutes or so with your background i know that i want to make sure our guests know you have a really unusual path for for where you came from to where you are now and i think it's pretty inspiring so i want to make sure you share that story uh how did you get here what do you do how do you do what you do so please take it away about 10 minutes or so and then we'll kind of talk about some of the current event stuff thank you yeah sure uh thank you michael and what a pleasure and i love the title of your podcast dare greatly <laughs> so it's a wonderful way to inspire actually because to dare is something that i learned from a very young age and so uh if you think about the path that i took to where i am today so for your audience i know i've spoken about this to you earlier but for your audience i grew up in a very small town in northeast india so northeast india is actually really different from the rest of india it's the mountains so it's a little remote so the uh, town i grew up is called haflong so it's basically haflao it's a small mountain the original word the british could not pronounce that so they turned it into haflong <laughs> so yeah so so growing up there what was very interesting was that as a small child what i what i realized was that if you want to get an education, it was really important, first of all, to be able to walk to your school for a very long time. So the journey, and that's why I say dare greatly, right? So walking through mountain roads in different weather to just get an education was something that taught me a great deal. And so the walk was about 45 minutes uh, each way. And since the age of four, so that was a great way of building character and personality. And I would say that in terms of my path from there to becoming who I am, and also adopting space as part of my expertise and thinking. Once I finished high school, I saw that I had an inclination and a passion to study international relations and uh, great power politics. And what was important for me was that when I looked at the local community conversations at that time, and these are from some of the very remote ethnic communities in Northeast India, they seem to have a lot of connection to the universe and the stars, including my own family. And so growing up in that environment, there was also the spiritual side of it that was very attractive. The one thing that I would never forget growing up was that when we would lose power, we lost it very often because of the monsoons, the wires would break. And so the best thing about that was that you had direct access to starlight 
and the moon. <laughs> yeah, and so it was wonderful. We never complained. We would have these hurricane lamps we would use to study, and everything looked magical. And so that's something that has stayed with me even today, uh, living in the U.S. Something that I always look to for inspiration. So a bit about my personal journey. Once I finished high school, I decided to specialize in political science and politics, and it was a very conscious choice. And it was surprising because I think my father also had a role to play, because he advised me to pick up something that I love, not something that would give me a lucrative return, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he said you will be able to do that anyway if you build a niche for yourself. So the important thing is to do something that you actually love and feel this long-term passion for. Right. And so politics and international relations was a very critical part of my thinking. And so I specialized my uh, bachelor's in political science. I graduated with a degree in political science and international relations. And then I did a PhD after I finished my master's in the same subject. I did a PhD in international relations, where I specialized uh, looking at international relations theory, how states behave, grand strategic thinking. And what was important, Michael, was that despite it sounding so theoretical and a systems level approach, the fact that I also had this very unique experience of growing up in an ethnic community setting with diverse communities with different languages. I mean, you know India has 25 official languages and there are thousands yeah. dialects, right? Yeah. In my little town, there were more than 30 different languages, right? Wow. And, so, and so that created a kind of understanding of the world and the diversity that it brings, right? In terms of different languages, different cultures, traditions. And so I always also brought that to my expertise on state relations and international politics. And so that's a little bit of my personal journey, but then my shift to professional life. Right? Were, were you taking, were you in school mostly in India or were you abroad at this point? No, I was in India. I, yeah, studied okay. in, I studied in my in, in Northeast India. I studied in a missionary school called St. Agnes High School. It was a convent school for girls. Okay. And we, of course, had our uniforms and <laughs> not like schools here where kids can wear whatever they want. It's more right. British in yeah. its orientation. And okay. so it, it was an interesting way. In some ways, I think that was important because it also kind of created this. It's interesting. I, I would think that way, but it created an egalitarian and environment because everybody had the same uniform right. so you know you could afford that uniform and you didn't have to you know there is pressure when you don't have to wear the same clothes right, right. especially when when kids grow up but anyway so um, I've, had, I've had a conversation both of my interns right now are from korea yeah and it's a same, very similar program where it's a regimented high school program yeah. Everybody's in uniform. So uh, it's interesting. That's one of the things we talk about uh, when they get here is the culture shock of just everything, everything different. So, wow, that's fascinating. Cool. Yeah. So that's also a part of my personality. Right. So when I, that's that's a, it's a very interesting. I'm glad you asked the question of my background. But anyway, so uh, so let's shift to my professional work now. So once I got a Ph.D., I worked at the Indian Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis mm -hmm. for nearly 10 years. Uh, I specialize in international relations, uh, ethnic identity formation, northeast conflicts, as well as looking at how nations conceptualize their grand strategy and long-term thinking, right? And so the interesting thing is while I was doing that work, space formed a part of the work 
but it was not the core competency I was developing in those earlier years, right? Yeah. But, but then what happened was that uh, based, during that time, I also traveled. I got fellowships to go to different countries. I went to Australia. I went to Germany. I also got to travel around the world to Southeast Asian nations. And so what I recognized was that there was this fascination, not just with international relation, but also with what space can do for a particular society and country, right? And so the conversation would enter even the policy level dialogues that we were having. So uh, finally, once I moved to the United States, uh, I established my own strategic consultancy and uh, I applied for a Minerva grant with Peter Garretson. And we included the study of looking at great power competition in space, specifically because of Peter's own experience in his background in the U.S. Air Force and my backgrounds, understanding countries' grand strategy. By then, I had completed about 15 years of work on China's grand strategy, thinking India's grand strategy, including some of the other Asian countries. And so from there, it's very, I've been very fortunate from then on, based on fieldwork, based on writing two books. What I find fascinating is that I'm at a position in my life now where I find the returns of that kind of investment fulfilling, right? And so, and I think I would stop there. So right now, as you ask, what am I doing? Right now, I uh, teach, I teach for the Thunderbird School of Global Management's, you know, degree uh, on basically a global management degree, which includes space policy and leadership. I also teach for the Joint Special Forces University, but I also write. As you know, we co-authored a book with Peter Garrison called Scramble for the Skies. Uh, and and I'm right, current, uh, currently, oh, thank you for that, yes. And I'm currently writing a book on China's grand strategy and looking at how China's thinking on, it's on, for example, first presence, territoriality, impact space, uh, and some other earth conflicts. So how does that all play out? So I'm writing that book. I'm hoping to get it out by next year. Uh, I want to come back to the current book. But let's let's spend a little bit of time on Scramble for the Skies. Let's let's talk about what it is, what the goals were. So so talk about what the goals, the intent were, uh, and, and kind of some of the results because it's it's been around. Like it's uh, it's getting cited. It's being used. Talk about it. Talk about it. Sure. So the goal behind Scramble for the Skies was to analyze a comparative assessment of how countries, especially great powers, Mm -hmm. by which we meant the United States, China, and India, are looking at the interesting development of a concept called space resources, right? So the goal was that, how do you go about doing this? So we had lots of conversations and policy talk and in conferences where people would refer to this idea of space resources, which is about extracting resources in other planetary bodies or an asteroid. And some of the resources that people talked about included platinum, titanium, iron ore, water ice on the moon. And so what we recognized was that while there was a lot of conversation, there was n- there was not a single book that did an assessment of what were countries talking in terms of the intellectual community and the activist community, what were they talking? Did those conversations make it to an academic literature? And once it made it to that intellectual academic literature, was it reflected in policy documents? And once reflected, were there actually programs? 
and uh, what are the end results of those programs. So that was the path that we followed and we applied for a grant uh, based on that thinking, uh, which was the Minerva Research Grant from the US Secretary of Defense, which is a research initiative for social sciences. And so once we received the grant, we actually conducted field work in both China and India to understand how they were thinking in terms of the questions we ask. Is there actually thinking on space that is changing? Right. And so the book, I think, filled, if I may, filled a lacune, which was lacking. Right. For example, because there was a lack of such connection between space resources and how nations viewed that as part of economic prosperity and military power as well. There was the misunderstanding that nations were still focusing on space from an exploration space science perspective. Right. And so. What we found based on our field work was that countries like China, United Arab Emirates, Luxembourg were thinking very differently, right? They were arguing on space from a different perspective, from a space development perspective. And India to a lesser extent, but it was starting to. The US also had very significant policy shifts, right from the Bush Jr. administration to the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration. So there was a slow shift in recognizing that post-Cold War space development, space exploration is different from Cold War space exploration. It was slow in getting there. I thought China was in the lead, but the U.S. is starting to respond to that, right? right. And so that's the genesis of the book. The book is doing well. Uh, what I find very gratifying is that it's been used in the classroom for teaching. It's also used by the policy community in understanding these different countries. And I think the last chapter is what also... Uh, I have got a feedback that people find very interesting because in the last chapter, what we do is that we look at how space is going to unfold to the year 2060, right? So what's going to happen? That has uh, stuck a resonance in, in the audience that we saw. Well, and the 2060 date uh, also corresponds with the Chief Scientist of Space Force's document, I guess it's maybe four years old now, but you know, what does is, what is 2060 look like? This, I just posted a link in the chat, is uh, Marcus Holtzinger. He's, he's got your book on his Space Power reading list. Uh, we're we're really me Liftport our team uh, we're really interested in this idea and just so you know we're considering building a book club a, a just okay. a digital book club um, kind of four topics fiction because it's fun um, technical nonfiction current policy documents because there's documents that come out all the time. And then the last one is actually a space power reading list and so a book book club. So we haven't committed to doing it yet. So don't hold your breath because we're stretched pretty thin. But I, I think Scramble for the Skies is a really interesting kind of necessary book. And I feel like, as you said, if it, it, it fills a gap that's been there for a while and not everybody even knew that there was a gap. So uh, pretty, pretty happy to see that. It's, uh, I know it's curriculum at Thunderbird with you and Dr. Greg Autry. Where, where else is it a curriculum? I think you said a defense program. Yeah, so it's also used in the I was recently, last year, I was in a conference in the University of Pennsylvania, so they're using it as well. So how do we make out, so if you go to the cataloging of libraries across the U.S., the book has made it to almost all the major uh, universities. Wow, that's huge. 
Yes, that's really gratifying to hear and to see. It's it's a website called WorldCat. You can also see if your work is uh, reflected in libraries. The book is also being used in the Air War College and Air Command and Staff College. Right. It's been used in the military academies as well. But what I find wonderful is that, for, for example, I teach a course on technology, science and society at Emory, along with Dr. Holly Sametko, where she leads the, leads the seminar. And the students there also have that as a list in their reading. And it's also available in the library. So it's it's actually, it's wonderful. And I think what made the change was that once the book came out in paperback, the price of it came down as well. Right. So that made it much more accessible, a $30 book versus $100 book, right? And now, now we will also, we are also planning to have it in Audible. So that should even increase the audience further beyond just academic uh, graduate level degrees to a, uh, to a bigger audience that likes to listen to books. So the idea is that the more you have the book being listened to, discussed across the U.S. and the globe, the more people realize that this conversation about space resources actually has policy significance, has funding, and has potential, yeah. right? And nations are already getting forward in that particular uh, capacity building. So. so you're in this spot where you're evaluating your great power competition, I'm relatively new to this field. So just describe what does great power competition mean in the 21st century? Because I know what it meant during World War One and World War II. Yeah. But but give us some context about that and then we'll wrap it into space. But let's just focus on great power competition. Sure. So there are two concepts in international relations. One is called competition and one is called cooperation, right? When you cooperate, you align, you create partnerships and great powers have also collaborated and cooperated. For example, the U.S. and the United Kingdom, right? So in the turn of the century, uh, after 1945, the U.K. descended from being a great power and the U.S. took over and it was peacefully done between them. So that could also happen. But then there is also the concept of competition where great powers compete for uh, influence, compete for power, uh, compete for getting their particular perspective adopted by other nations. So they want to provide leadership. So they compete at different levels. One could be they compete in the economic realm, uh, they compete militarily, they compete for power projection, and they compete for societal influence and diplomatic power, right? So how, how is the whole scenario different today vis-a-vis -vis the Cold War, where the US and the Soviet Union were caught up in a great power competition? In fact, superpower rivalry is what it was called, right? Because these were nuclear weapon states with enormous levels of power. So today, the great power competition that I define is between the United States and China. And why do I say that? Because uh, one of the interesting ways that we can find evidence of that is through the assessment that was done by uh, actually under the guidance of Deng Xiaoping in 1936. So Deng was the uh, leader of China after Mao Zedong, right? And so he was the one who opened up China in 1978 to the world. And so in 1986, Deng commissioned the Academy of Military Sciences, the Chinese Academy of Military Sciences, and the Chinese Academy of Sciences to do a study on the concept of comprehensive national power. And both institutes invested a lot of time and they they came up with both qualitative and quantitative data sets on what that means. And in their estimation, they looked at it from 1986 to 2020. 
So they forecasted to the future. And in that estimation, what they recognized was that there are the most important criteria for great power competition in the 21st century is economic. So it is about becoming the most powerful economic power. And you do it in a way that does not challenge the primary power, which is the United States, which is very much used to being challenged militarily. Right. So it's so the U.S. strategic community and discourse is very much influenced by the clause of which idea of uh, attack, uh, center of gravity. Right. The fog of war. You engage directly. Uh, of course, Lozovich, uh, it, to his credit, talked about uncertainty and the fact that there could be so much friction. Right. But he believed in this uh, very clear confrontation and battles. Uh, the Chinese conception of warfare is very different, and they identified that especially the Chinese Academy of Military Sciences argue, and they projected, what is so interesting to me is that they projected around the 19, late 1980s that the U.S. will decline by the 21st century and China will be on the rise, right? Because when they they kind of equate the criteria of great power status, which is economic power, they saw China rising and challenging the US. And what I find interesting is that that's actually coming to fruition today, right? So China is rising economically, There's, despite the fact that COVID happened and they had a little bit of a downturn, but there's still a resilient economy. The uh, grid is still pretty, pretty yeah, straight, yeah. Pretty strong, and they're investing in strategic technologies. So the great power competition today, to be very clear, looks like this. So. For China, the concept of warfare is uh, is across the different levels of competency. It is economic war, influence war, societal war, uh, propaganda war. They identified that as societal influence mechanisms and information warfare. Okay. So their warfare is such that you do not necessarily have to engage in a conventional battle, right? You slowly, and this is interesting, you slowly undermine the great power in the system, which is the United States today, the primary power, and you do not challenge it directly because that makes it realize and suddenly wake up, right? As with Sputnik and the Soviet Union. But you do it in such a way that it seems like you're not really challenging the country, but then you do activities that undermine U.S. power. For example, you support Russia's invasion of Ukraine implicitly, not explicitly, right? Right. So the argument that Chinese thinkers would make is that the very fact that Russia went ahead and invaded Ukraine and challenged NATO and the European Union and the U.S. tells you that U.S. power to deter such behavior is coming down, right? And so China, if you remember, Putin visited China just before he invaded Ukraine uh, in February, early February, and uh, China agreed to the uh, Russian articulation of what that means. Why were they planning to invade Ukraine? It's because of NATO expansionism is what they argued, and China agreed with their position. And what I predicted at the time, uh, many Western analysis was that this is very transactional. He will change his mind in a month, right? But that is completely I know, and it's proven wrong. Last week, President Xi made a visit to Russia and uh, called Putin a friend and said that China will continue to support and prop up Russia's economy, 
right? Yeah. And so, uh, so contextually and conceptually, that's what great power competition today is. It's a very silent competition, but it's very visible now. And you can see that China is willing to provoke and act in a manner that challenges a U.S.-led world order. So that's the great power competition we are dealing with. And I see it uh, playing out in space as well. Okay, so let's let's talk about space. Let's keep that in the background because that's always in the background. Like that's the world that we're living in now. Let's talk about space. Um, I was going to bring this up later, but since we're talking about it, I'm going to bring it in earlier. Just at the very end, and I'm going to share the screen here in just a moment. Just at the very end of last year, the White House issued a document and. I kind of lost my mind when I saw this thing. I, I'm so happy about practically everything in this document. But they they issued the uh, National System of Science and Technology Strategy you know, out of the White House, November 22. I have like 221 comments uh, on this document. So if people want to see that, I've got available. And I'll post a link here in a minute. The piece I want to talk about, we could spend our entire conversation on this document, but the one that I really want to talk about is talking about the Artemis program, uh, what they're going to do, communications, position, navigation, and timing. Cool. That's, that's the reference area. The exact quote is, the U.S. government, in collaboration with allies, international partners, and private actors, will work to establish the first long-term presence on the moon. Lessons learned on and around the moon will be used to take the next giant leap, sending the first humans to Mars. To me, this is a very direct confrontation. And to me, this is the first step in an actual Cold War. Now, for many years, the last several years, I had been saying, no, there's no Cold War with China. There's no space race with China. And when this document came out, I actually flip-flopped. I'm like, okay, now, as of November 22, we're officially in a space race. Now, this does not talk about China. It's saying we're going to be first in the world. But to my way of thinking, uh, China is the only organization that can challenge us being first on our first long-term presence on the moon, first humans to Mars. I'm super impressed by the United Arab Emirates. I think they're an underappreciated space power, uh, and they're definitely going to Mars 100%. Are they going to be first? I'm skeptical. But, but I don't think anybody could legitimately challenge the United States on, on the first long-term presence on the moon. So with this, with this paragraph and context and what you just said a moment ago about great power, Dr. Lanius, the chief historian of NASA, we had a conversation on this show about December, so just after this document came out, uh, and he said, no, the conditions today are not the same as the conditions during the Soviet Union uh, efforts to go to the moon. His argument was, no, we're not in a space race with China because the conditions are different. But he does say that it could change, right? He did say it could change. So now with all that context, uh, I'd love to hear your, con your, your ideas 
on this on this document. I don't know if you've read it. I'm not trying to get to the whole thing because the whole thing is giant. But this paragraph: Are are we in a space race with China? Yeah. Yes. So um, I've read the document and I think it's uh, one thing that I would point out is that I thought it was really critical for and I wrote about this uh, before, even during the Trump administration, that the U.S. needs to have a vision for the moon even before the Artemis program was established, right? So looking at China's space program, what I realized, oh, sorry, especially the China Lunar Exploration Program, I should specify, what I saw was that they were meeting and declaring goals that were very strategically critical, right? So for example, establish first presence on the South Pole of the moon, establish first relay satellite. They're launching the second relay satellite next year, Magpie Bridge 2, to build up that ecosystem, right? And also communications, which is very critical, very not very dissimilar to what NASA is funding called LunaNet, right? For communication for the moon. But I think I, I was, I'm impressed that the administration came up with a document that specifically talks about cislunar and that define what cislunar is, the earth moon space. So that's important. I, I was impressed that they had words like space economic prosperity. Uh, so the moon will be viewed as a part of economic prosperity and development. I would say that in terms, I'll get to the first very soon. I would say that the document could have been stronger in terms of space development and why the moon is critical for resource extraction, which was not so much the focus. The more focus was more space science, exploration, and the first presence of NASA astronauts on the moon after the Cold War, the first moment and the first person of color. So those are all very good developments in my mind. At least there is a very Vision, right, which I thought was lacking before Mike Pence announced that there would be an Artemis program in 2019. The Trump administration and then continued by the Biden administration today. I would say that to say that first is not critical or that this is not a race to get to the moon today, I would say that that's not entirely right, right? So if you think about the geopolitical impact of having the U.S. leading a lunar program, the Artemis program, and creating partnerships with democratic and like-minded nations, and China building its own lunar alignment and Russia joining in, for example, for the International Lunar Research Station, which they hope to build by 2036, that itself tells you that there are strategic alignments that are forming. And I know NASA wants to believe that it's an exploration space science mission. And that's why I wrote a piece in the Space Review recently that even to make that shift from a mindset of exploration to a mindset of playing a role in a geopolitical environment takes time, right? But you see, NASA was basically conceptualized as an institution during the Cold War after Sputnik. So its entire formation was based on showing showing U.S. capability vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. So it played a very important role in the moon race, for example. So now coming to your specific points here about being first, right? I think that's important because if you want to build a permanent habitat, for example, on the lunar south pole, and I use the word permanent, right? That means that you will have the capability to build norms, to build regulatory mechanisms, to uh, extract resources and share it with your partner nations, and that's the goal. And to analyze the surface of the moon and be there to be the first to do it, and then use that data to inform other nations as to what's there, 
right? And that's the goal of the Artemis program. Now, what is interesting is that why I think there is race developing is based on facts. It's not based just on opinion, right? For example, if you look at the timeline of China's lunar exploration program, timeline has been pushed forward. So the Artemis program wants to build a permanent base camp by 2028. If I remember right, they want to launch humans and then build that camp. China has actually moved their date ahead to also start building a research base by 2028. So before the argument was this, that the Chang'e 6 will launch next year to go to the lunar south pole for sample return. The Chang'e 7 will launch in 2028 to survey the south pole. And it's only between 2030 and 2036 that they will launch their Chang'e 8 mission and subsequent missions to build that research base. But now they're arguing and pointing out that they will start building their base by 2038. So they have moved ahead their time scale as well, right? And we how, how many times in space have you seen the uh, the program slip to the to the right? And then how many times have you seen the program accelerate? Like that's new to me. Yes. Like nobody accelerates their space program. Especially because timelines are never met, right? <laughs> because space right. technology is difficult and this is new ground, right? To build a structure yep. on the moon is not a joke. You can, you're, we have, I know we have simulated labs on Earth, but to then build on the moon is a very different a puzzle, not just a puzzle, a solution to solve. You would know it so much better than me, right? And so I think that there is a race developing and it's a very serious race because how China is viewing it is that they were the first scientists that pushed for robotic missions to the moon and did not push for humans, right? So they argued that, and I've spoken about this in your uh, in your earlier conferences as well. What China's focus is that you build that logistics capability right from low Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit and cislunar space, and then you actually start scaling up slowly to about 2036 to 2040. And so now that they're seeing that the Artemis program wants to do very similar you know, activities and build a base camp, they want to scale up their mission even more. Now, I'll end by saying that uh, while I'm really happy with the cislunar strategy, I still would want more policy excitement and NASA investment in developing and demonstrating capability beyond just human landings, right? It has to tell us, okay, if you build a base on a particular area on the moon, what are the policy plans for resource extraction on the moon? What scale are you thinking at, right? Which China is telling you, Wu Wearing, the chief scientist of lunar program, wrote a paper recently where he pointed out that China is looking at helium-3 for nuclear fusion, water ice, and rare earth minerals on the moon, like iron ore, and very clear, right? No ambiguity. And he points out that, and he also tells you why that is critical. I want clearer vision of why the U.S., wants to do similar activities and what is that large-scale mission. It can't be just a very small Artemis base camp that wants to do space science and space exploration and understand the moon to understand Earth, right? That is wonderful, but you need to go beyond that to the larger strategic discourse that China is putting out. So yes, there is a race developing. Earlier it was a scramble, so we called it a scramble. I see actually changing now. It's getting much more serious and there's a huge push by China to uh, build up their space capacity. Now, whether they succeed, uh, I, I cannot really predict that but I can only tell you what they're doing today and and what that might lead to. I I think it's pretty amazing. Uh, 
I had a conversation recently about Russia and China, China and Russia had this kind of announced partnership about going to the moon. Me, I'm really skeptical. I don't, I don't think that Russia's the the player in the game that they used to be. Assets at Baikonur, the uh, the the Star City, just got seized by Kazakhstan because they weren't paying the bills. Not everybody knows this. Let me give some background. During the uh, during the original space race days, because because Russia is so far north. It doesn't have assets very far south, right? And so it basically forced its its uh, vassal state, uh, and 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 that was that was true during the, the Soviet Union days. It basically forced its vassal state, Kazakhstan, to build a a, a spaceport. And so fast forward, the Soviet Union collapses, the Federation starts to grow. You know, we think the world's going to be in a better place. Didn't really turn out that way. Uh, but uh, but now here's, uh, you know, the Soviet, the Soviet, the ex-Soviet space programs in shambles. It's a mess. We help, pro- America helps prop it up because we don't want a lot of the uh, Russian rocket scientists to move over to North Korea and to uh, Iran. So we prop up the space program for years and years and years and years. And thank God we did, because when we canceled the shuttle, we were dependent upon the Russians. But then fast forward, uh, they invade Ukraine. All of their all of their space revenues dry up in an afternoon. Like that happened practically overnight. So suddenly their space program is completely out of cash. Kazakhstan seized assets because Russia was literally not paying the rent. So to me, Russia is out of the space game. And if they stay out of the space game very much longer, they will never be able to get back into it. What what are your thoughts on that? This is my gut feeling from the outside, not being a professional. So I'd love to have a challenge or or just a perspective on that. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I agree with you because uh, I just read that particular, uh, you know, news reporting, including from Moscow Times, as to why the assets were seized. And as you said, I think they had about 23 million in debt in euros and they had not paid. And so the Kazakh court uh, asked, I think that particular company that was in charge of that spaceport to seize their assets. So they're in negotiation right now. And so let's see what happens, right? But as you say, I, whether they were able to pay up that particular debt, I'm not sure. So uh, in terms of Russia's space program itself, uh, I know they're behind on many of their launch schedules, as well as building their lunar program. They had a, remember, they also articulated this ambition to build a lunar, entire lunar series to go back to the moon. That's moved back. And so I think the very reason that Russia is signing on to agreements with China is that China is the one with the money and the one that actually is doing the demonstrations today, going far beyond Russian capability and the actual gate. Right. And so it makes sense for Russia to then collaborate with China because Russia still has technological capability, has counter space weapons capability, has an anti satellite weapon capability. So they are actually a pretty serious player when it comes to 
low Earth orbit national security space, right? So I think the one difference between China and Russia, and Putin gave a speech uh, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where I think I could make out the difference between China and Russia. So Russia's investment in its space program was a lot about national security. So it was to ensure that they can hold American space assets uh, vulnerable so that exactly a scenario like Ukraine, where there is escalation of conflict, the conflict will not move beyond a particular level of escalation because satellite support is critical for nuclear weapons deployment, as you know, command and control, tracking. It's a very critical part of it, that infrastructure, right? And then uh, what Putin said was that Russia's investment in space is about counter space, ASAT, and it's very clear. China's investment in space is across three drivers. One is commercial space and economic power, which is the key. Two is, and by commercial, it's state-funded, but they're propping up commercial capabilities, right? Right. different from the U.S. ecosystem. The second important prop is how does space enhance China's comprehensive power, not just national security, its ability to influence. And finally, it's about national security, right? It's about the Taiwan scenario, command and control, the Beidou navigation system, jamming, spoofing. Uh, in fact, I'll point you to General Southman's testimony on March 14th to the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, where he pointed out that the big concern for the U.S. Space Force was that both China and Russia are actually augmenting their uh, non-kinetic capability, which is laser power beaming, and also kinetic capability. And he pointed out that they're also investing in orbital platforms. It's not just Earth to space, but space to space, right? Yeah. And so his recommendation was that the only way you can counter this is to build a proliferated LEO system. So, so many satellites that it will be impossible, right, to take it out. But you see, Russia has that capability. And so it might destroy a few satellites, if not many, but that itself can create problems, right, because it creates debris in space. So, yeah. Russia is a junior partner in terms of the civilian ambition in China, but still is a player in terms of technological development. So I wouldn't write Russia off. It might not be a major player, but uh, it, it is still a player. Let, let me let me refine it then. So I don't think so. I, I 100% believe that they can disrupt space. Right? There's there's five companies have done uh, countries have done ASATs. There's uh, America, Russia, China, India. Uh, oh, sorry, there's four. And then, and then Russia did it again. Yeah. The first time you do it, you prove that you can. The second time you do it, you can. You show that you will. Right. So I believe that Russia is able to disrupt other nations' goals in space, but I don't believe that they can build their own lunar system, any any part of their own lunar architecture. I think they're out of the game. So I want to be real clear about uh, when I say that they, I don't think they can do. So with that, with that clarification, is that a little bit more accurate? Yeah, so I agree with that because the very fact that they s- signed on to the China-led International Lunar Research Station, uh, if you right. look at the systems, they, so they put out a press release and the launch system is more the Long March 5 and the Long March 9. 
So they are they will collaborate in building the actual structure on the moon and some of the power beaming capability, uh, the lunar uh, lander capabilities. But the launch systems are Chinese. So and China, as you know, just announced that they're going to make their Long March Nine reusable by 2030. So they just took a decision last year, and which is interesting to me, right, Michael? Because when I was in China in 2017 and right before the pandemic hit, uh, what was fascinating was that when I asked uh, very senior Chinese strategic thinkers whether they will be investing in a reusable capability, they were very reticent. They said that we still haven't, we don't have the confidence as of now to put it in a white paper, right? So, and this is something which I think uh, when you study China, it's important to understand that while when you see media articles, they might be propaganda, right? But once it makes it to a white paper and they're very, very, they're not very bombastic in their white papers. They are much more objective and careful, right? And so you see that in the 2021 white paper, reusability is a key technology, which means they have already started testing very low scale, but successfully testing. Like the Long March 8 has already been tested. They recently tested, uh, you know, a system which the Financial Times accused of being alleged, being it's a nuclear tip, like a FOB system, orbital bombardment system, which traversed low Earth orbit and came back. The Chinese argue that this is a reusable spacecraft, right? And it, it's interesting because it came from the South Pole in July of 2021, and U.S. radars do not look towards that, right? And so, uh, and so, yeah, I would, I, I agree with that, with your assessment that when it comes to lunar launch capability, actual building of robotic autonomous capability, Russia might not be able to meet some of the goals, but in collaboration with China, they might very well meet those goals, right? Because China is escalating its program, investing in it, articulating long-term goals, and building partnerships through the Belt and Road Initiative as well. Okay, that's interesting. I, I had uh, I had kind of written off Russia, but what I'm really, what I'm hearing is Russia as technical partner to enhance the financial partner of China, which I wasn't really looking at that. I was thinking about Russia kind of going it alone, which I don't think they can do. Uh, interesting, interesting. That kind of uh, upskilling and knowledge transfer, I didn't think that was was going to happen. So that that's cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. historical because during the Cold War, Russian scientists, space scientists, uh, Took a played a very important role in China's own development of its space program. I mean, they right. they then decided to stop it because Mao Zedong wanted to build nuclear weapons, so they fell out and then continued to support uh, China's development of capability. So uh, the Shenzhou rocket is very much uh, designed based on the Shoyu's rocket, right? So yeah. so it's a very clear uh, collaboration that they have historically had. And so it's not it's it's not the important point is that this is not a sudden development of strategic uh, relationship, right? It has a historical connotation. There were periods of break, and then they are coming back together again. So it's a very interesting, and I use the word strategic. So it's not friends. They are strategic partners. <laughs> <laughs> not friends. That's kind of an important... Uh, uh, Remember that, yeah. Yeah, for sure. We only have uh, just five minutes left. I want to post your um, your space review article about how to be a leader in space. So let me just get that. 
I love Space Review. I like Jeff Faust. I like what they do. So talk about, just for a moment, why you publish in Space Review in the first place of all the places that you could publish. And then what what are you saying we should do for space leadership? Sure. So um, I, I like the Space Review for, I think, if I think, when I think through why I published there, first of all, I see that the Space Review is read by the space community, right? So I, I publish, as you know, widely, including in academic peer-reviewed uh, journals. But what the Space Review has is depth of leadership, uh, readership, as well as uh, what, what I find most fulfilling is that people take the time, the readers take the time to read your article and then write to you, right? Share their own expertise and also to have a counterpoint, which also improves my own knowledge, right? And which I really enjoy. I enjoy a challenge because it only improves my own understanding of, for example, a technology, right? For example, artificial intelligence, or there was a huge debate over this article, right? So when I wrote this article, the comments, and I don't read all the comments, but the emails people sent are very interesting. They actually write much more serious uh, policy recommendations that they think I had not included or I should have included, right? So I think that's why the space review is great because it generates a debate and a discourse and uh, people at the policy level read it. Yeah, yeah, they do. It's an important, it's an important part of the uh, of the ecosystem and it's old. It's been around for, Dr. Faust has been running that thing for at least 15 years, 19 years, maybe like, it was one of the first things I read when I came into the industry, and it's been consistent over two decades. So, all right. So let's let's talk about what the U.S. should do for space leadership, and we have to be fast because yeah. we just have four minutes. So, uh, quickly to summarize, uh, what I argued in the article is that the U.S. has not yet woken to the fact that the discourse over space has changed in other countries. Right. So the discourse on space is a lot about commercialization, economic return, space development. And the U.S. continues to be reticent to use those words very clearly. And I think that if the U.S. really wants to become a leader in terms of 21st century, uh, you know, space, adopting the language of partners, for example, Japan, which is really bullish about space development and utilization, is really important for the U.S. So that's number one. Policy documents and narrative needs to understand that the discourse on space has changed, right? Second, what I found, uh, and I know the Biden administration then issued the Cislunar strategy, but when I was looking at the 21st century priorities that they put out, I couldn't find space resource utilization. I could not find any any recourse to the economic prosperity that space brings, which partner nations are looking for, right? So you can only bat for becoming the primary actor in the system and arguing that you have leadership. But if you do not provide leadership in terms of where the discourse is going, uh, you might lose out, right, to a country like China that's offering the particular leadership. And then finally, my more uh, long-term push for U.S. leadership was that I think the U.S. is a great example of a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. Uh, A person like me coming from Northeast India can make a home here and can uh, offer, you know, strategic discourse. And so I thought that it is a great example of a democratic representative nation, which is also the major power in the system and should take up the mantle of space leadership and offer that vision to the rest of the world and should include countries all across the world, including not just focusing on 
you know, historic allies like from the across the Atlantic or from Asia, but allies, strategic partners, say in Africa, Latin America, and which I see now happening with the Artemis program, right? So yes. that's why I push for uh, U.S.-based leadership. Outstanding. Dr. Namrali Goswami, as always, it is terrific having you part of our shows. Um, we're going to talk again later. It's really great having you here. We really are grateful. Thank you very much. Um, I, I hope that we're going to have this on a, on a more regular basis. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for all of your wisdom and insight. And uh, with that, we're going to end here for the evening. I want to always put a shout out to my team. Without them, this thing couldn't come together. So uh, Leah, Jin, Seung Key, uh, Yusuf, Fabio, Taylor, Rachel, all of the team. Thanks a lot, folks. Appreciate thank it. You. All right. And with that, thank you very much, Dr. Namrali Goswami. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.